I'm Janet Forrest, and this is The Bonds, The Mitchells, and The Dawn of Time. Episode 4. In season 4 of this podcast, we have been following the parallel lives of the Mitchells on Nantucket and the Bonds in Cambridge. Though they are separated by a body of water, their work and lives overlap and intersect again and again as they make breakthroughs in astronomy, navigation, and surveying. But eventually, the two families' fortunes diverge. As Mariah Mitchell and her siblings experience success and longevity, the Bonds face one upset after another. This week, my colleague Jim Borzilleri and I examine the trials and tribulations of the Bonds and the lengths that the family members go to to keep their firm and legacy alive. The term Black Swan refers to an event which was unexpected, previously unimaginable, and has long-lasting consequences. The Bonds would face not one, not two, but three black swans on top of a list of tragedies and adversity that were just a matter of life in the mid-1800s. The greatness of the challenge is matched and surpassed by their resilience and focus. This will be a dark episode, but it's worth sticking around to find out how it ends. Let's go back to the 1850s. William C. Bond has died, and his son Richard is running Bond and & Sons and living with his wife Sarah in Cambridge. William's son George and his family are also in Cambridge, where he's running the Harvard Observatory. In 1860, Richard and George's brother Joseph Bond, who had been bought out of the company years earlier, dies after a long illness. Beyond their personal troubles, there are national factors at play. Here's Jim to set the scene. Between 1859 and 1866, America is going through some profound transitions. Obviously, there is a civil war. This would have a profound impact on the Harvard Observatory. A lot of the funding is reduced. Private donations dry up. And George, who inherits the observatory, discovers that his father had been making up many shortfalls from the family business income, which was something he couldn't do. One of the lines they have is that he lived and worked at a feverish pace while he was at the observatory. Undoubtedly, it's a telling choice of words because uh, he was clearly suffering from tuberculosis, which they also said was a scourge in Cambridge at the time. Eventually, he would die from it in 1865. And at that moment, the observatory would no longer be under the bonds. It was no longer a bond fiefdom. It passed to other individuals in the Harvard community. While the brothers were involved in both the observatory and William Bond and Sons, so were the assistants at the observatory. Several of them would eventually go to work for William Bond and Sons after spending their time at the observatory. 
In terms of the observatory itself, obviously funding had dried up. Many of those assistants had left to go participate in the war. A man named James Gillis was appointed head of the United States Naval Observatory, and he reformed it. And given the changed climate because of the war, uh, he was able to have it designated as the official observatory. Harvard lost its role as being the de facto observatory, and other universities began to uh, mimic its time services for their local area. Richard Bond is now the only remaining sibling involved in the family profession. He had already been giving careful consideration to the future of William C. Bond and Sons. In fact, in 1860, the year his brother Joseph died, Richard made a significant change to his will. In that, he directs that Sarah would inherit his share of the business and be designated the sole executrix. So he could have picked any one of the people that surrounded them. I mean, they, they obviously knew some very you know, influential and accomplished Bostonians and people in Cambridge, but he decided, no, Sarah is the one who's going to get the business. And if she, you know, if she dies, then it would fall to his, his business partner, which was her brother, John. It's not clear how much formal education Richard's wife, Sarah, received. However, her understanding of math and mechanics were solid enough for her to do computational work for the Harvard Observatory. Regardless of how she obtained this knowledge, it would have been unusual for a woman at this time. Here are a couple excerpts from letters her brother-in-law, George, then head of the observatory, sent to Richard and Sarah while he spent time in Maine, hoping to alleviate his symptoms of tuberculosis. Note that Sarah is referred to by her nickname, Sally. Bethel, Maine, October 14, 1864. Dear Richard, I write this mostly that you may know we have accomplished the journey safely. Tell Sally that the solution by successive approximations proves to be very practicable. And will she send me her results as soon as obtainable or let me know in case of difficulties? With best love to Sally, truly yours, G.P. Bond. Bethel, Maine, October 30th, 1864. Dear Sally, your several letters and the large sheets have come safely to hand and have been duly welcomed in proportion to the preciousness of the one and the size of the other. But what an appalling complexity those last DL notations, equations exhibit. It very much enhances my appreciation of your skills and resolution whenever I look at them. Your affectionate brother, G.P. Bond. With George's passing and no direct ties remaining with the Harvard Observatory, Richard puts all his efforts into his craft of clockmaking. Through this whole period, Richard continues to work on the three clocks, and they are all higher quality of anything that William Bond and Sons had previously made, which made them some of the best clocks in the world at that time. Each one was unique. Each one was a kind of improvement on the prior version. They were built not concurrently, they were built in sequence, and you can start to see some of the evolution of Richard's thinking as you go through all of them. In 1864, he was still healthy enough to travel to London, but very quickly after that, he starts to show the signs of tuberculosis as well. His health continues to decline. In a memoir that John, his partner, had, had written, it says that he designed the escapement and directed the assembly of the last clock while still on his deathbed. He's just fading slowly from this horrible disease that he's watched at least one of his brothers die from. Finally, in 18, early 1866, in February, he does succumb. 
And at that moment, over the past eight years, William Cranch Bond and all three sons have died. They've wiped out the core of what was the Harvard Observatory, as well as leaving William Bond and Sons more or less empty with only Sarah and John Morton to carry on the work. And of these seven siblings of the seven children that William Cranchbon had, only one, Selena Cranchbon, would live past the age of 40. And most seem to have died of tuberculosis. Though this seems exceptionally tragic by today's standards, tuberculosis and other illnesses were everywhere and mostly untreatable. Most people would die of an infectious disease. They didn't know what caused it. Some of their treatments were ill-advised by contemporary eyes. They didn't understand it was a bacillus. Germ theory didn't even exist. They wouldn't identify the bacillus until 1882, and there really wouldn't be a viable treatment until the 20th century. As horrible as it is to think about, to have six out of seven children die before the age of 40, that wasn't that unusual. In accordance with Richard's will, Sarah Apthorpe Cunningham Bond, now a widow and single mother of three, takes his place at the firm and co-partners with her brother John Morton Clinch. She has now assumed her late husband's control of William Bond and Sons with really one goal. That is to keep the company going, to keep it prosperous until such time as her and Richard's son, William, can become a partner. Because this is a family business. And at that moment, he's the only person of his generation who appears to have the ability to take over. But it's not just holding hands or holding the reins. This is a dynamic company. She makes a few changes to Cambridge. Estate is sold. Sarah, with her children, moves back with her parents in South Boston. Her brother, John, is still there because he is not married yet, and that's kind of traditional. She now is a single parent of three very young children. She also has assumed direct responsibility for the debt of buying out Richard's brother and father. Right now, it's down to about $8,600. So it's, it's coming down, but it's still a fairly significant amount of money. The good news, such as it is, is that at Richard's death, the company was thriving. It still had an outstanding reputation. The post-war economy was starting to kick in. Railroads were going west and they all needed chronometers for their business. And there's also a bit of revitalized international shipping. Maybe they the American maritime industry never would recover, but from an international basis, there was still a tremendous number of, of ships being built. In terms of the workmen themselves, most came from England or Switzerland, as I mentioned. Interestingly enough, most brought their own tools. They were highly compensated for that time. They were making about $18 a week, which would be very, very good wages at the time. The firm itself was coming into the news again. The last clock that Richard worked on, it was called 394, they were numbered, uh, was displayed at the Paris Exhibition of 1867. Uh, it was assembled and demonstrated by a former HCO assistant who later would, who was now working for William Bond and Sons. This is a man named Augustus McConnell. He was Harvard educated which gives you an idea of the quality of the workmen that, that were in the shop at that point. And this clock was more refined that the escapement of this clock, the actual mechanism, the control, how it's keeping time was more sophisticated than anything anyone had ever seen before. And it wins the silver medal. Interestingly enough, when you look at the newspaper readings, it first gives it to Sarah. She has this corrected to what it's now officially designated as, which is earned by William Bond and Sons. And you can actually see the medal over at Harvard in their museum. They weren't just holding the reins. Sarah wasn't just kind of keeping everything on autopilot. Uh, they were constantly making improvements in the later clocks, 
under the supervision of Sarah and John and some of the key employees, especially Augustus McConnell, but also two others who would go on to accomplish themselves, a man named Henry Smith and another one named William Hart. Notably, in 1875, Augustus McConnell patents the improvements for the governors of electric motors. They figured out how to electrify these clocks rather than rely on weights or on a spring. So they're really still embracing any new technology as it comes along. In 1869, we know that there are about 12 highly skilled workmen in the shop. That was probably the high point. In 1870, an opportunity did arise. There was another firm called Simon Willard & Sons, who is another watchmaking company, they were shutting down. And there was an opportunity for Sarah and her brother to buy the inventory. Now, it was extremely expensive. It would have been about $16,000. They already had eight or $9,000 in debt to begin with. So this was certainly going to add to it. But they made the decision that, that it was worth their while to buy this inventory. It was financed through a Boston attorney named Abraham Jackson, who is very prominent, and he specialized mainly in trusts for widows and orphans. So he was considered to be very safe, very conservative, and very responsible. While all documentation and writing makes it unmistakably clear that Sarah was critical to the functioning of the firm, again and again, she attempts to minimize her role. She would write a paper in 1875 where she says, my role was simply as bookkeeper and ciphering of the chronometers. But I think that's a bit disingenuous. Richard obviously thought well enough of her to make her the sole executrix and also to inherit the business back in 1860. So she clearly had some abilities. Because of Richard's slow decline, they had plenty of time to have some fairly serious, if painful, discussions about how to handle the business, what you should do if something happens you know, what opportunities you should take advantage, what would constitute an acceptable amount of debt. And clearly, as we saw, Richard was, to use a modern phrase, he had a pretty high appetite for risk. He was willing to buy out the others, take on the debt, borrow the money and try and run it himself. So this is someone who's not being cautious. And clearly, some of that willingness to take chances was passed on to Sarah, and she might have been inclined to do it herself. Why was it so important to her to not take credit? Well, she was born in 1835. She was the daughter of a minister. One thing that clearly runs through entire life is her deep, deep and sincere religious faith. She was working on several church committees throughout all of this. So this is someone who I think had a very strong sense of humility. Like many women of her era, she certainly wasn't about to publicly display what she's doing. She wasn't on an ego trip. Although in that paper in 1875, she does make allusion to the fact that she was a little concerned about publicly assuming control of the business, but discovered that it actually worked out that there were no, you know, there were no negative consequences. Given the attitudes at the time, a firm that's run by a woman, you know, that's that's going to raise some eyebrows. But she was clearly perceived as competent by the people who cared. Her competency was put to the test in the next decade as a flock of black swans arrived. The first swooped in in November of 1872 and became known as the Great Fire of Boston. 
Very similar to the fire in Nantucket, it wiped out most of the business zone. At that point, because of the Willard purchase, uh, William Bond and Son hit two shops. They were both on the edge, if not inside the burn zone. Sarah will later credit the Boston Fire Department for saving the company by rescuing some of its inventory. And even at a later inventory, there are some indications of some watches and clocks that actually had smoke damage. So clearly this was about as close to, to destruction as they could get. The second swan was in 1873, the financial panic. This would lead to a recession, or if not an outright depression, that would last pretty much to the end of the decade. Business fell off everywhere. Obviously, William Bond and Sons was affected as well. We know that they began to have to negotiate their rent down. It was just a very, very tight moment for them. But probably worst of all, in 1875, Abraham Jackson, the lawyer who had negotiated the deal to purchase the Willard inventory and had been involved in other aspects of the business, disappears unexpectedly. He's later arrested in Vermont for allegedly securing multiple mortgages on the same property. He's carrying three passports and traveling under an assumed name, so it's pretty obvious he's trying to skip the country. It takes a while to unwind all of his financial involvement, but when the dust settles, the numbers vary, but it looks like he had assets of around $200,000, but liabilities of around $600,000. So these are big, big numbers, and many of the people that were implicated in this were, in fact, the very widows and orphans that uh, had entrusted their finances to him. For Sarah, and the business was pretty horrific, there was a $40,000 exposure on their end. $31,000 was for William Bond and Sons and another ten dollars to Sarah directly in terms of cash and stock. She had also, as under William Bond and Sons, they had co-signed some notes for Jackson under the assumption that these were going to be safe investments. They were not. They had also mortgaged Joseph Hart Clinch's house in South Boston. So that was actually sold at auction. They were able to buy it back, but it was a near thing. There was also an impact to Selena Cranch Bond, the surviving daughter of William, as well as the two daughters of George, who had been orphaned by his death. We're not sure if it was directly because of any investments they might have made in William Bond and Sons, it's probable that Selena inherited the note that had been given to her father as the sole survivor. As far as the daughters of George, we know that suddenly they applied for roles as teachers, something they had not been doing up to that point. In terms of William Bond and Sons, in 1875, the company goes into receivership, the creditors move in, there's a forced sale of the inventory in 1876. Fortunately, and again, as we've noted, it's good to have friends. Uh, four old friends of the Bonds, as well as the Clinches, come forward. They lend about $1,000 each to the firm so they can buy back some of their inventory and keep the place going. So the firm lives on. But obviously, any personal investments, any savings Sarah had are gone. The firm has basically its inventory and not much else. They have to move from their current location to a new location just because the rent is cheaper. If that weren't enough, Sarah's daughter, Edith, starts coming down with tuberculosis. And in 1878, she dies at the age of 16. In less than a decade, Sarah would bury her husband and her daughter and oversee the family firm through a major fire, an economic depression, and a financial scandal. It's against this background that in 1875, a paper is presented at the Second Women's Conference, presided over by Mariah Mitchell, written by Sarah Bond, that is titled, Employments Open to Women. Here is an excerpt from the letter, and you can find the full paper in the show notes. 
There is one point concerning my entrance into this business that I think might really be of some use, even to those who may never, like me, be thrown upon their own resources. That is, that I could not have done it without previous training, not only in mathematical, but mechanical, which training I went through from choice when there was no reason to apprehend that I should ever be obliged to put it to practical use, simply from the desire to understand and share my husband's pursuits. When I knew the necessity, it would have been too late to acquire it. While during my whole married life, my acquaintance with the details of the business enabled me to judge when I might spend freely and when and why I should save, thus sparing us a fertile source of trouble and discord. I don't think there's any self-pity per se, but it's clearly written by someone who, you know, as she says, she was kind of thrust into this business. She wasn't looking to run the business. She would have been perfectly happy, as she says, in the domestic sphere, which, of course, at the time includes school, church. It's not just being at home. If she hadn't experienced so many unexpected tragedies, would this still be a borderline discouraging paper or would it have been more aspirational? It feels somewhat discouraging, but maybe that's because we know the background. If I was there in the audience and I, and I heard this paper, I would say it's almost aspirational more than it's discouraging, but it's clearly written by someone who's saying you may be put into this position, even if you don't want it. And if you are, here are some things you can do to make sure that you will be successful. Above all else, Sarah's main motivating factor to keep the firm alive was her son, Willie, who had yet to obtain the education and maturity for full partnership. In 1876, Willie enrolls at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's School of Mechanical Arts. Now, this is a two-year program designed to train factory technicians and shop managers. It's not considered a baccalaureate program. The students are registered as what are called specials. So it's really for very, very, very highly trained technicians, highly trained mechanics. Upon completion of his studies, Willie is set to travel to Europe to continue his training. Leading up to this trip, Sarah and her brother John have been carefully considering Willie's readiness to join the firm. On Christmas Day in 1881, which happens to be Willie's 21st birthday, Sarah writes Willie a touching letter announcing their decision. Here's an excerpt from that letter, which was donated by the family to the Harvard Library. You can read the full letter in the show notes. My dear, dear son, it was one of the deepest regrets that your father felt in leaving us that he would not be able to give you the thorough training in the business that he and his father had each received in turn from their fathers, and which he knew it would be impossible for me to obtain for you. We thought it would give you a better position and many advantages to go as a member of the firm. And we have finally decided to give you as our united birthday present on this Christmas morning, when you pass the boundary line between youth and manhood, a partnership in the firm of William Bond and Sons. Your loving mother, S.A.C. Bond. After his time in Europe, Willie returns to America and settles in Malden. In addition to his work at the firm, he becomes involved in the bicycle community, which was a big thing back then. Compared to the decade of black swans in the 1870s, business is going more smoothly for Bond & Sons. There is still plenty of demand for the American method device, clocks, and chronometers. 
However, Sarah's personal finances never recovered from the many setbacks of the previous decade. So even though she remains a partner at the firm, she seeks outside employment as a librarian at the Harvard Library and is also contracted to catalog the Bedford, Massachusetts Library. The business keeps along, and in 1889, a decision is made to essentially get out of the manufacturing side of the business because John and William have looked at it, and I assume it's with Sarah's concurrence to at least some level, every dollar that they're spending on manufacturing is costing them 2 to $3 in just plain retail, that they know the products, they can import them, they're good enough now that it's just not worth it to build it. And that's the direction they take. Sarah officially surrenders her partnership in the firm, and it is now run solely by her son, William, as well as her her brother, John. Sadly, in 1894, Mary Bond, her other daughter, dies also of tuberculosis. She had been pursuing a career in something called the SLOID, and that's S-L-L-O-Y-D, vocational movement. This was a process where you would teach young people to build a box or something, and that would sort of give them the skill set. They you would then use that to uh, work on other skills that were adjacent to construction. So again, this is part of the vocational movement. So it's very much in line with what the family was pursuing. In 1896, Sarah revises her will for the last time. She leaves everything to her one surviving child. That's William. She also directs that her funeral be as simple and unpublicized as possible. By the year 1900, Sarah and William are the only survivors of their immediate family. And after spending most of their lives in Boston, both find themselves on Nantucket. Sarah is hired by the Board of Trustees of the Nantucket Athenaeum to recatalog their collection using the Dewey Decimal System. If you want to know more about this impressive task, check out Season 2, Episode 7, where Jim and I delve into the story with historian and librarian Betsy Tyler. It's worth noting that the Athenaeum's 1841 catalog was created by none other than Mariah Mitchell. At the same time Sarah's plugging away at the library, William is on Nantucket for an entirely different reason. William gets married to Sally Rogers, a young woman that he met in Malden. He's 39 years old, and you have to wonder if just the amount of death in his family caused him to kind of avoid making a commitment. You know, that might have been a factor. Sally comes from Nantucket royalty. She's the great-granddaughter of Zenas Coffin, who is perhaps one of the wealthiest merchants on the island in the early 1800s. And Sally's grandmother still lived at a house on Main Street. William's arrival is noted in the paper, and his marriage to Sally earns himself a place in the Barney Genealogical Survey. So if you go out to the Barney Survey, you'll see him there. Perhaps because of that Nantucket connection, it sort of explains why when you read the director's minutes at the Athenaeum for the hiring of Sarah Bond to do the 1900 catalog, it seemed to go out of its way to see she is extremely qualified and she is extremely knowledgeable. I think they're just trying to sort of forestall any kind of perception of favoritism. In 1908, John Morton Clinch dies, leaving William the sole remaining partner in the firm. And in 1914, Sarah dies as well. Per her instructions, it's a very simple ceremony. There's no obituary, which makes tracking her life a little bit difficult. There's a death notice which says, A, no flowers, 
and B, if you are interested in attending the service, here's when it is. It basically says, you know, you will receive no other notices. So consider this your invitation. In 1940, almost 60 years after inheriting the business, William Bond sells William Bond and Sons to his two apprentices. And I apologize for not speaking Armenian, but I believe it's pronounced the Hekimans. He lives until 1945. He dies at the age of 84. In the 1940s, the Smithsonian Institution acquires the shop equipment from William Bond and Sons, and it is put on, a, on display on occasion. Apparently, the last time it was publicly on display was 1965, but buried somewhere in a warehouse out of Indiana Jones, you will find the shop equipment that was in place when Richard bought out his brothers. And finally, in 1977, the firm itself, William Bond and Sons, does close, but that's a full 111 years after Sarah acquired the business and tried to keep it going. I think if there's any consolation for her, that would be it, that she did keep it going well, well beyond and, and that her son was able to run it as long as he did. Next time, we will pick up where we left off with Mariah Mitchell and learn how her career rolls out after discovering the comet. She was the first woman allowed in to the Vatican's observatory. It took two weeks and suggestion of she wear pants because maybe they would let her in if she was wearing pants. And she was only allowed in during the day, but that's when she met Father Seshi face to face. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, edited, and narrated by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to the Athenaeum's Reference Library Associate, Jim Borzilleri. Please check the show notes for more information and sources on the research. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps others find the show. If you really enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or a colleague. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can visit us online at nantucketathenam.org. Stay tuned for our next episode of The Bonds, The Mitchells, and The Dawn of Time.